Tonight we are going to officially get into Revelation 12, and we're, as we showed you last week, kind of in a very central, important, themed chapter where uh, the, uh, the chiastic structure seems to be pointing all the way to this being the very central message. And the very central message of this, kind of in the central uh, verse of the chapter. Um, and so again, just like last week, you're really going to want to have your Bibles open to be able to kind of compare some things for this tonight. Um, because throughout Revelation, as I said last week, we see two groups of people, the 144,000 and everybody else. And we kind of want to try and make some sense of that. So I'm going to try and... Um, uh, make some sense of muddy waters or maybe even muddy the waters more. I don't know which. We're only going to cover a portion tonight and I'm going to give you an alternate explanation next week. Now maybe alternate's not the best word, but rather a um, additional. What I was saying at the, when we started this is one of the things that makes Revelation so difficult to understand, I think, is because of the cyclical or the patterns that are there. I said that I am a preterist in some ways. I think that there are preterist things that are correct. I am just not only a preterist where I think that throughout history these things that take place had fulfilled revelation, but rather they were a type of. Okay, I am a futurist. I am all of these things because I think all of those groups, they put all their eggs in one basket. Whereas I think Revelation has eggs from every one of those baskets. And that's what makes it difficult to really pinpoint what is happening here. And I think this chapter, probably more than any, is going to really uh, highlight that, that fact. So um, as we begin here in chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, we're going to see a, a story that seems to in some ways, depart from our chronological order for a little bit. Kind of almost like that commercial break. But maybe, maybe not kind of thing. We'll, we'll, you'll make more sense of that next week. But for now, we're going to take it at face value and identify some things here uh, the way it's typically understood. It says this, now a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a garland of twelve stars. Then being with child, she cried out in labor and in pain to give birth. So there are a number of characters here that we need to identify. Who is the woman, first of all? Now typically, uh, there's a huge number of people out there who will say that that woman is Mary. There's a huge group of people out there that say that it's the church. There's a huge group of people out there that say it's Israel. I think probably in some senses all of them. But the one that seems to fit the least would be Mary. Um, from the Catholic Church, that's the one that they're going to highlight. But uh, you're going to see Mary is almost always in Scripture pictured in a lowly state. We do see some similarities where 
Mary, after she gave birth to Jesus, fled to Egypt, right? Uh, but not the wilderness, although some people might say on the way to Egypt it was the wilderness or something like that. And that she was cared for for a time, as you're going to see as these verses continue on. If anything, though, I think it's more of a foreshadowing. Now, another thing I think that is going to be a big difference with it being Mary is, I was asking some people this last week, uh, Craig Lorenz and I were talking, and the timeline of this Christmas story that we hear all the time. I think all of my life, I grew up pretty much thinking this is how it went down. Mary's on her way into town, can't quite get there really. Uh, Bethlehem, she's at Bethlehem, and the water breaks. It's like, oh no, we got to get to an inn now. And so uh, there's no room, so she goes out into a barn, and uh, she has her baby. While she's got her baby there, shortly after she has given birth, we see that the shepherds are coming and singing, and then the magi appear at some point, at least while they're still there in Bethlehem. And now as they're kind of packing up, getting things ready to go, uh, you know, they're warned in a dream, you got to go to Egypt uh, because Herod wants to kill the baby. So they take off to Egypt. They don't get to go home. They're off in Egypt for who knows how long until God says, hey, you know, Herod is now dead. You can go home. And then they come back and they don't stop where they had the baby, but instead they go to Nazareth. Okay. For the most part, I would suspect that might be the general timeline that you guys had in your head. But when you compare the Gospels, Matthew and Luke, there are some differences or things that aren't recorded in some of the Gospels that are in others. As an example, we see that the Magi are not recorded in all those Gospels. And we see the dream where they're warned to go is not in all the Gospels. They're in separate Gospels. We know that the Magi came saying, hey, you know, we heard that there's this king, you know, where, and Herod's asking questions, and they say, well, it's supposed to be in Bethlehem, and so they go to Bethlehem, and they seem to find this baby. Well, they don't come back. Herod tells, you know, them to come back, but they don't. They flee a different route. That's what the scripture says. But we're also told that Mary and Joseph take baby Jesus into the temple, well, to get circumcised on the eighth day. And Craig and I were talking about that whole eighth day thing, that that's very significant, being circumcised on the eighth day, just like if Jesus was born on the day of tabernacles, which I can't tell you for sure that he was, I think I can really point to all the evidence pointing it was around this time, but to say it was the day, I can't. But how significant it would be if it was the day of tabernacles. Because then on the eighth day, the greatest and best day, he is taken and circumcised, probably there in the temple. Then we see after that, according to the law, a woman was to take 40 days to cleanse herself before they would go and make an offering in the temple. Well, we see in the Gospels that according to the law, they do this. So 40 days after Jesus is born, he is in the temple being dedicated when, you know, there's prophecies given over him with Anna and um, Simeon. Yeah, 
So that idea that he's going off to Egypt into the wilderness right after his birth cannot be. They were born, he was born, he, he was hanging out. I suspect he went, they went back home. Forty days later, they're coming to Jerusalem to the temple. They go back home, and it's back at home that they're warned in a dream, Herod's going to try and kill these babies, and then they go to Egypt for a while and come back. That seems to be the timeline that we see in Scripture. Wouldn't they yeah. have been there eight days later? For the circumcision, possibly, yeah, at the temple as well. Whether or not they had to be circumcised in the temple or not, I don't think so. So I suspect a good chance, but so probably, but I don't know for sure on that. But we do know scripture says 40 days later for sure. And there was the command of Herod to kill two-year-olds. Two-year-olds and under, yeah. Why kill two-year-olds and under unless... Yeah. So it seems that there was a significant amount of time that had passed. Now, the only reason I bring that up is to say what we're going to see is that as soon as this child is born, the devil is going after and whatnot. And so Mary probably doesn't flee immediately into the desert, if Egypt is even the desert, the wilderness. Okay, So it just doesn't quite seem to fit that this is Mary. But I do believe that there is a type of foreshadowing there for sure. Um, we're going to see more as we go along, but you're going to see that the devil is going to go after the rest of her seed. Well, if Mary is this woman, gives birth to Jesus, and then the devil goes after the rest of Mary's seed, who is that? Well, a Catholic would say, well, that's us, the church. Because, you know, Peter was the first pope. Well, I reject all of that. The church was not built on Peter. It was not built on Mary. It was not built on the Catholic Church. It was built on Yeshua and the confession that he is God. When Peter said, you know, where else are we going to go? And, you know, he, Jesus says, you know, upon this confession, upon you, Peter is what the church says. Upon Peter, your, your, the church is going to be built on you. But it was upon this confession of Peter that Jesus was the Son of God that was being referred to. Not Peter himself. The confession that Jesus is the Son of God. When he says, who do people say I am? He says, You're the Son of God. Mary, um, in verse 14, if you just kind of look ahead, we won't get there tonight, but it talks about two wings being given to, to this woman and then the earth helping her. We really don't know how that fits at all. Um, the dragon will make war against the rest of her offspring, as I said, was in verse 17. <coughs> On the flip side, we have Israel. And that's the one that I think is probably the main focus of what this woman is. It, it is Israel. Um, notice that a, she is a woman clothed with the sun and moon under her feet. On her head is a garland of 12 stars. Well, in Genesis, you're going to see Joseph having a dream. We'll look at this later, but there are 
The sun and moon represented his mom and dad, in essence, and the stars represented the other brothers or the other tribes of Israel. So there's some uh, certain biblical letting Scripture interpret Scripture saying, well, what, what are these normally? Well, Israel. That's normally what it is. The purpose of the sun and the moon was to have authority and rule. Uh, parents had that. The greater you know, light ruled the day, the lesser, night ruled the night, lesser light ruled the night. Um, so it's a picture of authority that is also, I think, seen symbolically as well. The preterists are going to say that the two wings of a great eagle that we're going to see later, that I'm not going to talk about tonight as much outside of just showing you what a preterist is going to say here, is an eagle was the sign, that uh, symbol of the Roman Empire. And there was Theodosius, who had two sons, Honorius and Arcadius. I'm sure I slaughter the names, but between which he divided the empire, making um, Honorius the emperor of the west and Arcadius emperor of the east. And this was by the providence of God, fulfilling this actual uh, prophecy here, they say, by dividing the empire up in about 390 A.D. So... In some measure, that secured the church from the great troubles that were there in a united kingdom when the kingdom of Rome was split into two. So they're saying that the wings of two eagles that protect the church is going to be the dividing of the Roman Empire. Okay? So could there be some symbolic truth in that? I Maybe. I just don't see that I can get that from Scripture, though. So what I've allowed to happen is history interprets Scripture, not Scripture interprets Scripture. The problem with that is history, as science and everything else, is interpreted. And that's why I think Scripture interpreting Scripture is just a vital foundation. So anyway... I think it is going to be Israel, is this woman. Now, notice it says, I saw a great sign appeared in heaven. This too has been, I think, abused throughout history in a lot of ways. Um, the very fact that it says a sign in heaven seems to say that you can take this figuratively. Some try to say that the woman is even Christ, Christ himself, but Christ is not going to give birth to himself, so that doesn't seem to make sense there in verse 5. Um, some are going to try and take the signs, and they almost turn it into what, we, what I call Christian astrology. Well, astrology in any form is wrong. Okay, to me, Christian astrology is no better than white witchcraft. It's all evil. We do not use the stars as, you know, uh, fortune-telling or to interpret Scripture at all. Does that mean that there isn't a message in the stars that God has put there? I think there is. I think Scripture does say that. Uh, we, I did a message on the stars here for you guys, I believe, right? Yeah. Um, but again, there's nothing new that the scripture doesn't tell you already. But I can't tell you how many countless times I have heard messages which will show me the stars in the sky 
they will show you Virgo, the virgin, and the moon coming up underneath Virgo's feet, and the sun being, you know, where it's supposed to be here. And look, there's the picture of Revelation right there in the sky, and this happened when Jesus was born. Well, there is some truth to that because every single year at that time, the same thing happens. Not only that, but the moon is under Virgo's feet literally every month. So it's not a big deal, but when we can say, and you go back, look, at this time, here's what the sky looked like. Oh, there it is. I think that while, like I said, maybe there is some truth to that and there is a sign or a symbol to that, I don't believe that's really the goal here. Um, it, it's deeper than that. But like I said, we're not going to get into Christian astrology because I think that's just wrong and I think that that will lead people astray. Well, they got three out of four. Where's the fourth? Um, what's the fourth part? Uh, the Darwin, the 12 stars. Uh, the twelve. Okay, what they'll say on that is the stars is actually a separate constellation too where I think maybe the Corona Borealis or something is up there and there's a crown and they'll take the 12 stars there. However, it depends on do you take the 12 brightest stars or, you know, that kind of thing too. So, again, that's what they're going to do, but again, that's always there. So... I think, rather, the, the 12 stars would be what Scripture says there in Genesis chapter 37. I had another dream, and this time the sun and moon and 11 stars, because Joseph is the 12th, were bowing down to me. When he told his father as well as his brothers, his father rebuked him and said, What is this dream you had? Even his father understood what these were supposed to mean. Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow down to the ground before you? So Genesis seems to or support the interpretation that this is Israel. And letting Scripture interpret Scripture rather than stars, I, I would say that we're on safe ground here. So, to show you, you say, well, Christ, how does you know, Israel give birth to Jesus? Well, it's what Scripture says. In Romans 9, 5, regarding the Jewish race, Romans, and Paul says this in Romans, he says, there, speaking of Israel, are the patriarchs, and from them, Israel, is traced the human ancestry of Christ. So, Christ comes from Israel, from the tribe of Judah. It just, again, Scripture seems to be interpreting what Revelation is supposed to be here for me. So, verse 3, another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great fiery red dragon having seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems on his head. Heads, plural. So, this is kind of what you were asking last week, Jordan, in this dragon. What is this red dragon all about? In a nutshell, the devil. Okay? <laughs> the, dra the devil. But... Notice it's a sign, again seeming to be more of a figurative language is what he's saying. That's what I love about Revelation is if it's supposed to be figurative, he tells us. If not, he seems to just lay it out. 
this fiery red dragon having seven heads, you can kind of see a little picture here that I've got from the Revelation illustrated by uh, Pat Smith here. Um, then you see seven heads and ten horns. So it's a little odd to have seven heads and only ten horns. It seems unnatural. I mean, I could see seven heads and 14 horns, you know, or seven heads and seven horns for the unicorns or whatever. But it, it's ten. It's, it's more unnatural. But with the heads, each one has a diadem or a crown on his head. So I want to show you that this is not new, as I'm sure you're well aware of. But before I do here, look at Ezekiel 29, verse 3 here, where you're going to see that Pharaoh was pictured as a devil and the dra a dragon. It's not the first time or only time in Scripture that we see dragons referring to the devil. Leviathan, that literal creature that we read about in Job in Psalms, is used as a symbol of Satan. Throughout history, dragons have been symbolic of Satan all the time. So, it says here in Ezekiel 29, Behold, I am against you, O Pharaoh, king of Egypt, O great monster. The Hebrew word there in some translations literally say, O great dragon who lies in the midst of, the, of his rivers. And the Hebrew word is tenin there, which is dragon. Um, and is translated as dragon throughout the scriptures. So, it's not unusual for the devil, by biblical interpretation, to be a dragon. So I think we're on safe ground here as well, saying, all right, the woman is Israel, the dragon is the devil. Um, to understand this, we're going to look at some other beasts that appear in Scripture with the same kind of imagery and descriptions. But in short... I think we're seeing an antichrist or the, maybe just the devil, not the antichrist, but the devil himself. And one of these heads being the antichrist, as you're going to see here. Daniel 7, uh, verse 7 and 20. Uh, we see in Daniel's dreams, like I said last week, he has a number of dreams all saying the same thing. But some of them start with Babylon going through all four of these kingdoms. The Babylonians, the Medes and the Persians, the Greeks, and then the Romans. And then the next one, you see Babylon may not be talked about because it's already fulfilled. So you have the Medes and the Persians, the Greeks, and the Romans, but it gets into great detail with the Greeks and a little bit of detail with the Medes and the Persians. And then you go to the next dream and you have even greater detail about this last beast, the Roman one. Well... This last beast, or a fourth beast, which would be the Roman one, has ten horns. And then in verse 24 of Daniel 7, it tells us that the ten horns are kings. So just like in Revelation, if something is meant to be a symbol, it will tell you. So these ten horns in Daniel are kings. In Revelation 17, when we are going to get to that later, there's a beast with ten horns, seven heads. And verse 12 of Revelation 17 tells us the ten horns are ten kings. 
exactly what we see in Daniel 7. Verse 9 tells us that the heads are actually hills. Hills on which these, on this, uh, um, the, the kings reign. Now, one of the fascinating things, we will talk about this later when we get further in Revelation, but we know that the fourth kingdom throughout all of Daniel's dreams is Rome. Rome just so happens to be built on what is called the seven hills. Okay? Now, historically, it's not the only city that has been called that, but nonetheless, it's the only one that fits the biblical description. Rome and seven hills. Now you got some connections here, possibly. And as we get further, you're going to see that it's much deeper than that. Uh, Revelation 13, again, jumping ahead, just one chapter, shows there's going to be a beast coming up out of the sea with ten horns, seven heads, and ten crowns. So I've kind of got it listed here on the bottom where you can kind of just see in an outline form. In chapter 12, 17, and 13, all of these have seven heads. We see that the Bible seems to be telling us they're hills and kings. We see in chapter 12, 17, and 13, all of them have ten horns. Two of them tell us, point blank, they're kings. Chapter 12 being one of them. So there's no question what these are. They're kings. And I would suspect then that the hills are, you know, or I should say the, the heads are also hills. The only difference then in chapters 12, 17, and 13 is that rather in chapter 12 where we see seven crowns, there are ten crowns in the next chapter. Now, why that is, I don't know for sure unless it is just three additional ones that are being talked about. Um, we know in Daniel 7, verse 8, it says this, While I was considering the horns, there was another horn, a little one. And it's typically viewed that you've got all these horns that are there in Daniel 7, but then there's another one that you add to it, and that that is the Antichrist. It coming up among them, before whom three of the first horns were plucked out by the roots. So you had ten of them, and then another one. And another one plucks out three of the original ten, which would leave seven. Possibly, that's why there's seven here in chapter 12. I don't know. But that's the only difference between this beast that we see in chapters 12, 17, and 13, and then when you look in Daniel. So, moving on here, in verse 4, it says, His tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth, and the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour her child as soon as, as, soon as it was born. So now we got the devil, the dragon, standing before the woman, Israel, who's about ready to give birth to Jesus to devour him as soon as he's born. Now, I can look back, historically speaking, based on Scripture. That seems to be what 
the devil tried to do through Herod to kill Jesus. Okay? I do think that was a type foreshadowing end times events. But this seems to be more of an end time event, possibly. We'll talk more next week on that. But anyway, we do see that the dragon's agenda is to try and kill Jesus. Now, while this does fit Jesus very clearly, I think, I think it also is going to mean someone else as well that I think is spot on, that fits more end times events, but I'm not going to get into that this week. But just letting you know that, yes, this is Jesus, but it's also something else that fits the theme of Revelation in end times and is clearly outlined in Scripture even. But we're not going to go there, like I said. So the devil here being thrown down to earth, this is something you had asked last week as well, and I said, well, you've got to wait till next week. I th he said, I thought the devil had already been thrown down. Well, if we are in chapter 12 going back in time to look at the time of Jesus being born, which in a sense I think we are, there is truth to that as well. As we have talked about before, the devil does not seem to be expelled from heaven until Jesus. We often think of that at creation and he was thrown down, but we see in Job and many other places he gets he's before God and you know he could go to and fro to heaven back down. Now I believe that's only upon the invite of God. But we see in a number of cases in the Old Testament, evil spirits before the throne of God talking to God, and God is using them, and they are under his authority. But they've been expelled from living in heaven. We won't go through all of those verses that we've looked at in past times talking about Jesus, but we'll look at a few of them. Um, Matthew 25, 41 here first. It says, Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. We know that there is a pit of fire reserved for the devil. We read in Isaiah 14, How you have fallen from heaven, O morning star, son of the dawn. You have been cast down to the earth. This is before Jesus. You who once laid low the nations, you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I'll sit enthroned on the Mount of Assembly on the utmost heights of the sacred mountain. I will ascend above the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. But you are brought down to the grave, to the depths of the pit. So when we look at this verse in Isaiah 14, it seems like he has already been cast down. I think in one hand, yes, he was kicked out of heaven, but he did have freedom to go back and forth. So it doesn't contradict that. On the other hand, here in Isaiah 14, it also seems to be speaking prophetically because he has been brought down to the grave, to the depths of the pit. And I don't believe Satan has been cast into the pit yet, but that will happen. Right now, he's roaming about like a lion, seeking whom he may devour. So I think there's also a prophetic aspect to Isaiah 14 here. 
So Ezekiel writes this in chapter 28 of Satan as well. Through your widespread trade, you were filled with violence and you sinned. So I drove you in disgrace from the Mount of God and I expelled you, O guardian cherub. From among the fiery stones, your heart became proud on account of your beauty and you corrupted your wisdom because of your splendor. So I threw you to the earth. There's no question Satan did get thrown to earth at you know, out of the Garden of Eden, he was, he, he was walked among the fiery stones. But because of his pride, his beauty, he was cast down. But he still had access in some way to God. Couldn't live there, couldn't dwell there anymore, probably couldn't ever get into the Garden of Eden anymore. I, I don't know how that all works, but that's what we're seeing. Daniel 8, when speaking of the little horn, which we showed you a little bit of before, the Antichrist, um, Daniel refers to the stars being thrown down. He says it grew until it reached the host of the heavens, this little horn. It threw some of the starry host down to the earth and trampled on them. So what is this little horn supposed to do? The Antichrist that Daniel, I mean, everybody pretty much says this little horn is the Antichrist. It grew until it reached the host of the heavens. Not necessarily in height, but in authority and power. And so it threw some of the starry host down to the earth. And notice that he trampled on them. No wonder they're so mad. This isn't like, hey, you know, the devil is my friend. I'm going to be partying with the devil in hell while you're servants to God in heaven. No, 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 no. I, I've, when we were evangelizing, that's what I had some people tell me. They, you know... You go ahead and be a servant to, to God. I'm going to be, you know, partying with the devil. No, you're not. That devil is just going to trample. And there is nothing but hate. There is no un united front in hell. But these stars we see are angels. And they are being trampled on here. But notice the timing of all of this. It is the little horn that does this. The Antichrist. And the Antichrist is the one that throws some of these starry hosts down. So it says, She bore a male child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron, and her child was caught up to God and his throne. Here in verse 5. Again, it doesn't seem to be any clearer description of what could be Jesus, right? Okay, she, Israel, bore a male child, Jesus, who was going to rule all nations with a rod of iron. Then her child was caught up. He was ascended into heaven, sat down at the right hand of God. Right? I mean, makes sense. And I agree. Just saying it doesn't end there is all, as you'll see next week. Psalm 2.9 says he will rule them with an iron scepter. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. Or uh, Revelation 2.26 to the church of Thyatira, he said, He who overcomes and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give power over the nations. He shall rule them with a rod of iron. They shall be dashed to pieces like a potter's vessel. We see in Revelation 19.15, Out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. Clearly, Revelation 19 is Jesus, and he is ruling with an iron scepter. Revelation 12, without a doubt, is talking about Jesus, in part. 
Here are some verses that I think are important just to kind of show you that he was caught up to God and his throne, it said. Well, Mark 16, 19, after the Lord Jesus had spoken to them, he was taken up into heaven and he sat at the right hand of God. Acts 2.33, he was exalted to the right hand of God. Acts 7.55, Stephen looked up and saw Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Acts 7.56, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Romans 8.34, um, who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus who died. More than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Colossians 3.1, set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Hebrews 10.12, but when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. There's no question where Jesus is. Revelation 12.6, and the woman fled into the wilderness. So, who's the woman? Israel where she has a place prepared by God that they should feed her there 1,260 days. So here is where I think the preterist views start falling apart. In that the idea that this is Jesus, it seems like, oh man, this is so easy to understand. We got a woman, we got Israel giving birth to Jesus, and the devil goes after it. But now, how is Israel... For the next 1,260 years or days or any, you know, fashion of, how is she taken into the wilderness and protected? We see in 70 AD that, you know, 40 years later, the Romans kind of take away all their authority, don't see any way in which they're taken into a wilderness and protected in any way, shape, or form. As a matter of fact, they never get their land back until 1948. So how this fits just doesn't make sense. Now, the preterists are going to use different wars that will go on and whatnot to kind of make... But again, it's history interpreting Scripture, not Scripture interpreting Scripture. We've seen this 1,260 uh, 1, days mentioned before. We saw it prophesied biblically in Daniel, chapter 7, chapter 9. We see it also in chapter 11 of Revelation, where the two witnesses stop it for reigning for 1,260 you know, days, three and a half years. So biblically we see this number. Historically, we do not. We really don't without really doing mental gymnastics. So now it's where it's like, okay, the preterist view just doesn't quite make sense. And, and maybe even that this is just Jesus doesn't make sense anymore, and there's got to be more to this. And that it almost seems like since all these other 1,260 periods are in end times, and now this is happening, therefore all of this has to be something that takes place in the end times. Hmm, that'll be next week. But you need to just kind of see all of the pieces here. But I do think that maybe uh, Hosea 2.14 is being uh, kind of alluded to here. Therefore, I am now going to allure her. I will lead her into the desert and speak 
tenderly to her. Um, that in those verses we see God is basically talking about Israel and being kind to her and luring her in there. We see this pattern, this symbol that we've just discovered here in Revelation 12 seen in other parts of Scripture where we see Israel being taken out into the wilderness after being redeemed in Egypt. And they go out there for, well, I find it interesting, for three days, maybe it could be three and a half, I can't prove that, I don't know, I just know that there's three days before they cross the Red Sea and God is protecting them. And then it's interesting that we see how the devil is going to go after this woman is send a great flood, but the earth opens up to save this woman. And what we saw in the Exodus is God for three days takes them out into the wilderness, parts the Red Sea. The devil thinks I'm going to have the waters come over, but instead the waters destroy it. The earth, in a sense, opens up to rescue them. Yeah, it's, it's not exact, but a, a picture, a symbol. So it wouldn't be the first time that we've seen something like that. Um, regardless, there seems to be, though, a lot of history covered here in six verses. Um, it seems, the theme, though, is that Satan cannot change the fact that he lost. He's upset, he's angry, so what he does is he's going to go after Israel and her offspring. Well, who is her offspring? Church. Yeah, enter the church. The church is her offspring. Because all of us, I mean, there's other patriarchs, from them is traced the human ancestry of Christ. We are grafted into them. We have become spiritual Israel. So the church is the rest of her offspring. That seems to be end time stuff. Like I said, I don't know how that fits back in the time of Christ. And we know that for the first three and a half years, there's protection. The woman is being prepared for, you know, protected out there in the wilderness. But then there's a time of the second half. We see that in Daniel, talked about in the midst of the seven, the Antichrist uh, seems to gain more power and whatnot. Well, verse 7 says, and war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought, but they did not prevail, nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. Now, I find this fascinating as well. We because either we went from Jesus and then jumped to end times, or all of this is at end times, because this is clearly end time language. War broke out in heaven. Michael, don't forget that. We're going to see that here in a couple of slides again. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon. The dragon and his angels, this third maybe that he brought down, fought, and they did not prevail. They lose. And there is no place found for them in heaven any longer. This is what I was saying before. It seems like he had some kind of access here, 
But he says, no longer is there any place. They're not even allowed to set foot to talk to God there anymore. This is where that Luke 10, 18 verse, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. It did not, not completely, but outside of the fact that at the time of Christ, he was indeed cast out. So you see a picture here that fits the time of Christ, but you're going to see another aspect of it that seems to fit in end times. John 12, 31, now is the time for judgment of this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. Driven out of what? Where? Heaven? Seems. 1 Peter 5, 8 says, Our enemy the devil prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. He's here on earth doing that very thing. Ephesians 6, 16 warns us because the devil is here to take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. That we are needing to put on God's word every day because the devil, that's a, this is a real battle that's taking place on earth here right now. And it's going to get worse. And if we don't have that armor of God and know how to use that armor of God now, what do you think it's going to be like during this 1,260 days? You better be practicing now using that armor of God. Um, this is not the first time we've seen the Archangel Michael fighting against Satan. Uh, I'll show you that here in a minute. But the fact is that there is war going on in heaven. That ought to make you think the kingdom of God is not quite yet. When the kingdom of God comes, that's done. The kingdom of this world becomes the kingdom of God, as we saw there at the seventh trumpet. So we're not there yet. We're at war. So don't, don't act as if we're at peace. The elections and all these things that are going on, this is at, we're at war. And we should be fighting on our knees. We should be praying for the evils in our community to be shut down. Don't give up. But Michael here has been appointed to protect God's people. We see it in the past, and we see it here in the last days. Um, it's interesting, as I said, that they lose their place in heaven. I already talked about Job and how he could have access to that. But like I said, at this point, no more of that. Um, all I know is that when the dragon tries to destroy the child and he fails, that causes war to break out. And that is what marks the timing of a three and a half year period of great tribulation. At least according to Revelation 12 here. If I had nothing else of the Bible and I had this, I would say, okay, well, here's the order of things. The devil's going after the child He's going to fail. He's going to be angry and go after the, the woman and the rest of the offspring. And then Michael is going to fight. And there is going to be a three and a half year period here. When did that happen in the case of Yeshua? I, I just don't have an answer for you on that. Even looking at the preterist view, I'm not satisfied. Which just leads me to say that there's something more here for end times. 
which again we'll talk about next week some other evidences that this is speaking of end times not just the past but I think the past is certainly being alluded to don't get me wrong um, this is another verse here as far as the devil being thrown down John 14 30 I will no longer talk much with you for the ruler of this world is coming he has nothing in me but that the world may know that I love the Father, and as the Father gave me commandment, so I do. Arise, let us go from here. This is Jesus speaking, and he says, listen, the ruler of this world, he's coming. He's going to be cast down. He's coming after you. Soon after this, we see that he, you know, asked to sift Peter as wheat. Now, interestingly, the very thing that Jesus said that Satan asked is significant as well there. Anyway, um, the generation of Jesus is when he's warning the devil's coming. Verse 9, So the great dragon was cast out, the serpent of old, called the devil and Satan. We don't need to wonder who it is. He told us, Who deceives the whole world, he was cast to the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. So, following the timeline here in Revelation, now the devil is cast to the earth, and the angels with him. Like I said, we've seen this archangel Michael before, Jude 1.9. Even the archangel Michael, when he was disputing with the devil about the body of Moses, did not dare to bring a slanderous accusation against him, but said, The Lord rebuke you. Michael is this great warrior angel that we see in Scripture. Daniel, though, speaking of end times, and everybody thinks that this is end times when you're reading it in Daniel, it's very fascinating because it seems to be the same event. At that time, Michael, the great prince who protects your people, notice again, who is Michael set to protect? Israel, the woman. Michael, the great prince who protects your people, will arise. There will be time of distress such as not happened from the beginning of nations until then. So the worst trouble that has ever come upon the earth. When did that happen after Jesus? 70 A.D., not even close. 130 A.D. was worse than 70 A.D. for them. The Holocaust even beat 70 A.D. and 130 A.D. So, when I see a time that's worse than any other time in the world, I think of Matthew 24, when Jesus speaks of end times, and he says, there will be a distress that will come greater than any that's ever happened or ever will again. So Matthew 24 seems to be the time here. But he says, but at that time, the time that all of this great distress is happening, your people, everyone whose name is found written in the book, will be delivered. Satan goes after them, but they will be delivered. So here, Michael is going to war. In Revelation, Michael is going to war. So, there's some weird things going on here. 
Matthew 25, 41. To those on his left, he says, Depart from me, you who are cursed into eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. This eternal lake of fire is prepared for the devil, but the devil's not in it. We've covered that. Um, like I mentioned here as well, he has asked to sift us like wheat. He still is able to go before God and say, can I have permission to do this? And God says, I'm allowing you to do this, but only this. The devil could not do any of the tribulation things unless God allows it. But when he comes back and the devil is thrown into the abyss, and prior to that when the other two, the false prophet and the Antichrist, are thrown into the abyss for the, the, before the thousand years, they're not even able to come and ask. So that's a good thing. Anyway, um, verse 10 says, Then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now salvation and strength in the kingdom of our Lord and the power of his Christ have come. Now. Now that Satan is cast out, Michael has won the war, the saints, they've been gone after but protected, now this is what's happening. You see, Satan has zero power at this point now. Salvation and strength in the kingdom of our God. The power of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren who accused them before our God day and night has been cast down. They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony and they did not love their lives to the death. Luke 14, 26, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, his wife and his children, his brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. These people who overcome the devil and all of these things who are in the kingdom of God, they did not love their lives to the death. They did not love their lives more than God. They did not love their children more than God. They did not love their homes. They did not love their possessions. They did not love anything more than God. And I think that's an important lesson for us as well to kind of keep that in focus. Verse 12 says, Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea, though, for the devil has come down to you, having great wrath because he knows that he has a short time. Hmm. So here... In verse 10, when we're seeing the devil being cast out, it seems now this is out of heaven only, though. Maybe it isn't out of earth. He's not cast into the abyss quite yet, but I think we're pretty much almost there. But he says, Rejoice heavens and you who dwell in them, but woe to the earth, because he's got a short time. Sounds like Matthew 24, that if those days were not cut short, Okay. It sounds like the tribulation period here. Psalm 96, 11, let the heavens rejoice, let the earth be glad, let the sea resound and all that is in it. So let the heavens rejoice, the earth be glad. Um, there's a day coming when not only heavens, but also the earth, when the millennial reign happens, we're going to see Satan will be bound for that thousand years. He's cast down, but not bound. 
Sing for joy, O heavens, for the Lord has done this. Shout aloud, O earth beneath. Burst into song, you mountains, you forests, and all your trees, for the Lord has redeemed Jacob. He, he displays his glory in Israel. So there's a day coming where, again, sing for joy, O heavens, O earth beneath. These verses are talking about a time after Satan can't destroy on earth anymore. Revelation 18.20, Rejoice over her, O heaven. Rejoice, saints and apostles and prophets. God has judged her for the way she treated you. And you're going to see that's when Satan is cast down as well. So anyway, um, Satan knows his time is short. He's going to have fury. We know there's a time when he will not be able to do exercise any of his authority anymore. But there is a short time where he's going to have that on earth. The troubling thing is, is when is he cast down? Is it at the time of the resurrection? Or is it all the way to the point of the end times here? The short time or the short uh, period that he has seems to suggest that Satan still has some sort of access to ask to sift his wheat, to do those things, but there's a time when the heavens will rejoice because there is no access anymore. When is that? Revelation 12 is all pointing to that being end times, not right now, not our current period. We typically think that Satan has been cast down either at creation or the cross, but it seems to be more end times and that it is, like you say, prophetic. When I saw Satan fall from lightning, he was speaking, I'm seeing the future, that he will be cast down. But right now, for whatever reason, and maybe like you said, it's because it's what strengthens us. It's an exercise of our faith muscle. So, But Revelation here clearly seems to say it's not until end times, this time of tribulation period, that he's cast to the earth and no longer has, you know, even conversations with God. So I would say that's where I lean. The idea here of the wings of an eagle, it said two wings of an eagle were given to this woman to, out in the wilderness to protect her. Well, remember I said Exodus has that same pattern, and not only the pattern, but it even says the same thing happens. In Exodus 19.4, you yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. God used this eagle wing imagery, taking them into the wilderness and protecting them, being the cloud by day and you know fire by night as this imagery of protection of God, divine protection. We see that when 70 AD happened, I find it interesting, he warned them in Matthew 24, so when you see the abomination that causes desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel, which was speaking of end times, he says, let the reader understand and flee to the hills. When 70 AD happened and the Romans were coming, there were a lot of Messianic Jews who saw, wow, this might be what Jesus was talking about. And they fled to the wilderness. And they were protected. And a lot of Messianic Jews survived 70 AD because they believed their Messiah. So I think that those are patterns. The Exodus was a pattern. 70 AD was a pattern. 
and we could give other smaller examples of Old Testament stories too, but these are patterns that God is saying in the end times, I'm going to be there for you. I'll be your canopy. I'm going to be protecting you. I'm going to take you on eagle's wings. The devil is coming after you, just like Pharaoh is coming after you. He's going to try and do all these things, but I'm going to be there for you. You just need to trust those promises. Clearly, that's the imagery, at the very minimum, that is being tried to get you know, uh, across to us here tonight. We may not understand all the details of what this is going to look like, but I think someday we will. Because I do think this is more end-time event than Christ. Even though I think Christ is a type of all of it, there is something more here. And I think it's going to become clear. Uh, In starting to wrap up here, Jeremiah 16, However the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will... No longer say as surely as the Lord lives who brought the Israelites up out of Egypt, but they will say as surely as the Lord lives who brought the Israelites up out of the land of the north and out of all the countries where he had banished them. Again, Egypt is constantly being alluded to. And here perhaps Jeremiah is seeing a foreshadowing of this day when God takes them out into the wilderness and he's the protection and he's going to call them up out. Okay, maybe that's calling them to Jerusalem. I, I don't know, but something like that. Hosea explains, therefore I'm now going to allure her. I read this before. I will lead her into the desert and speak tenderly to her. There I will give her back her vineyards and will make the valley of Achor a door of hope. There she will sing as in the days of her youth, as in the day she came up out of Egypt. It brings that same imagery to mind. You will call me my husband. You will no longer call me my master. I will remove the names of the Baals from her lips. No longer will their names be invoked. In that day, I'll make a covenant for them with the beasts of the field and the birds of the air and the creatures that move along the ground, bow and sword and battle, I will abolish from the land so that all may lie down in safety. I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you in righteousness and justice and love and compassion. This seems to be end times. And it's interesting that the betrothal, this whole kind of just before a wedding banquet is to take place, that that's the kind of imagery that is seeing. No bow, bow, no sword. And the timeline of Revelation is that millennial reign comes before the wedding, but there's a betrothal, a protection being carried off into the wilderness. Verse 15, So the serpent spewed water out of his mouth like a flood after the woman, that he might cause her to be carried away by the flood. So, again, that Old Testament imagery, the waters of uh, the Red Sea, perhaps, imagery. Daniel 11, see how the waters are rising in the north. They will become an overflowing torrent. They will overflow the land and everything in it, the towns and those who live in them. The people will cry out. All who dwell in the land will wail at the sound of the hoofs of galloping steeds, at the noise of enemy chariots and the rumble of their wheels. Floods throughout Scripture have often been a picture of armies coming in. So this great flood that is sent out after the offspring and the the child, could it be war, battles? Very well could be. I don't think it's literally water. So the serpent spewed water out of his mouth like a flood after the woman. Probably kings, people, 
you know, this tribulation period. He knows his time is short. This is taking place during this 1,260 days. Therefore, there's going to be battle. There's going to be people coming after you, it seems to be. Verse 16, last slide, but the earth helped the woman, and the earth opened its mouth, swallowed up the flood which the dragon had spewed out of his mouth. And the dragon was enraged with the woman, and he went to make war with the rest of her offspring who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. So, um, the rest of her offspring seems to be none other than those who want to cling to Israel. Let us go with you. Okay, those who joined Israel. Um, but notice that he's only going after the obedient. You know why that is? Because only the obedient are offspring. The disobedient aren't offspring. It just is a, an adjective to describe the offspring here. And so, I don't think it's an accident that right after Peter confesses Christ to be the Son of God, that's when Satan says, can I, you know, ask to, to sift him as wheat. When we become obedient to Christ, the devil hates that, and he's coming after you. You're going to have trials, you're going to have tribulations, you're going to have things going on in your life when you do it, because he's testing you. And we have to just stand firm on the promises of God that what he said is going to happen. Romans 11, if the root is holy, so are the branches. If some of the branches have been broken off and you, though a wild olive shoot, have been grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing sap from the olive root, notice that we share in the nourishing sap. This is this whole, this whole branch root thing. The root is that covenant that God made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We have been grafted in and we now share in the same promises, the same nourishing sap. We are the offspring. You haven't replaced that child. Okay? You are in Christ. So Romans 9, 8, in other words, it's not the natural children who are God's children. It doesn't have to be DNA Jews. It's the children of the promise. You believe in the promise that God gave to Abraham? That's the promise of the gospel. Well then, see, it's not a new promise to the church that has replaced Israel. It's the same promise he gave to Abraham, the same promise that you've been grafted into, and it's the same promise that makes you not a foreigner, but a natural child. Not just a natural child, but the children of the promise who are God's offspring. So... Um, this is what it means to take hold of the seat seat in Zechariah 8.23 there as well. <clears throat> Let us go with you. Grab on to the promises of God. So, who is the woman? In a sense, it's Christ. But as you're going to see next week, it's also you. Okay, we'll talk about that later. Um, there's a lot more to determine that. But for tonight, I just want you to kind of look at those pieces we're going to try and next week look at the whole chapter again, what we've seen so far, but look at it in a different light and make some sense of it. Like I said, I believe that in a sense it probably is like an M to Z kind of thing, from Jesus to the end, that that is being typified. But there's also a focusing in on something that's going to take place in end times here.
Okay. So we'll look at that next week, and we'll close in prayer.